is I'm going to read through some things. If you have any questions, um, feel free to ask. And then I figure after after I get this stuff out, then we can do a little bit more free form and see where you want to take the conversation uh, about comics and imagery and civil rights. So there right, we go. Um, this, as you've probably all seen, is titled The Importance of Comic Books and Growing a Culture of Diversity During the Early Days of the Civil Rights Movement. Um, my name is Brian Syrick, and I'm a graduate of Villanova History Department, undergrad and grad school. Um, admittedly, I'm a big fan of comic books, and I've had an academic interest in them since high school, and I did my senior research paper, um, something called the comic book as a legitimate form of literature, which I got a lot of flack from from my teacher, but ended up making my case and got a good grade on it. Um, throughout my time here at Volnova, I've become increasingly more interested in the imagery found in popular culture and such throughout history. One of my areas of research specifically became the depictions of minorities and oppressed groups in mediums that were built for mass consumption which would be daily papers, um, any kind of propaganda, comic books specifically. Um, without going too far off topic, I want to point out two commonalities that you will probably find rather consistently when you inspect this kind of consumable art. What you'll find is that there's an interesting and unexpected dichotomy. There's a history of the working and oppressed classes actively creating and what was generally seen as this disposable art and imagery. Contrast that with the history of rampant derogatory caricatures, usually referencing the same people who are working and oppressed, and you can see where there may be some conflicts there. Remember that this group think does not only refer to African Americans, but also to historically and categorically oppressed groups in America, such as immigrants of Irish, Jewish, and Italian descent, women, and American Indians among others. This accepted and largely inconsequential bigotry had yet another troubling component in that a majority of this image, imagery was intended for the specific consumption of children and teens. That might not seem all that important, but I posit that these depictions serve to subconsciously reinforce the notion of oppressed groups as the other. Um, and they'll actually serve to influence the formation of these children's perceptions of themselves and others they encounter as they grow up. For the purpose of this lecture, I'd like to focus on uh, a derivation from the typical historical depiction of the other in popular culture and this consumable art. Because of the impact on the industry and what follows culturally, I would say that this marks the beginning of a significant shift in what was considered the norm. In the turbulent times that marked the height of the Civil Rights Movement, the news was filled with accounts of the struggles of icons such as Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Rosa Parks, the Kennedys, President Eisenhower, Lyndon Johnson. The Civil Rights Act of 1957 <coughs> had passed, and just before this, Megar Evers was killed, and, actor, and actors on all sides were gaining followers. With August 28, 1963 March on Washington and Dr. King's famous I Have a Dream speech, there are no more denying the power and presence of the movement in American culture. Although the call for racial equality was heard all across society, the means to achieve that <coughs> equality were still being heavily debated. Dr. Martin Luther King followed in the footsteps of Gandhi and Jesus and believed that in the strength of a persistent nonviolent protest. 
Dr. King was not looking for retribution or to take control of society, but to live in a truly equal and colorblind country where race did not matter and all people were equal. The man who was gaining influence as his counterpoint was known as Malcolm X. He was a more radical uh, black Nation of Islam follower who at this time believed the only way to achieve equality was to take it forcefully, or as you hear a lot, by any means necessary. But much like historical figures like Nat Turner, Malcolm X came to these views through his own experience with racism, prejudice, and violence against him and his family. As part of this message, Malcolm X went to get what was owed to him and to become the oppressor in order to exact revenge and take what he knew he wanted. The historical transgressions need to be overturned, and the only way to do it was through force. While understandable, these beings played directly into the fears and stereotypes put forth by those who wanted to retain the intimidation and power in society. It's important to note that later on, those views shifted significantly, but this puts you in the context of what was going on right there in 1963. The country was divided once again, and just 100 years after the Civil War almost destroyed the nation, America was in danger of allowing internal strife surrounding race to crumble this republic. Amid the newspaper headlines of protests and segregation, as well as the first in a string of assassinations that set this unfortunate tone of the decade, a small magazine publisher in New York City did something quite remarkable. Formerly called Timely and Atlas, this upstart Marvel Comics was owned and staffed overwhelmingly by Jewish American immigrants who were veterans, most of them were veterans of World War II, and they made a bold move for the time. But that move was not criticized, wasn't disavowed, it wasn't trashed in the media. Worse yet, it was just ignored. What Stanley and Jack Kirby, working with Martin Goodman, did was release a new kind of superhero book in September 1963 which means they were actually writing and drawing this probably just as the march was in the news and on, on television sets. The timing is crucial as the group known as the Uncanny X-Men make their debut this month and wrap up what's commonly known as the Silver Age in comic books. Unlike the already popular heroes such as Fantastic Four, Superman, Spider-Man, and the Avengers, these heroes were noticeably different. They were outcasts. They were segregated to a special school for gifted children. While Stan and Jack may not have set out to make an astute political commentary, but they did in fact have an idea of what they were trying to achieve with their newest book. With the introduction of a team made up of characters called Cyclops, Beast, Marvel Girl, and the Angel, and led by Professor X, who happened to be a paraplegic telepath, the mighty Marvel marketing machine made it obvious that these were not your everyday heroes. Early on, the core characters acknowledged their struggles to be accepted and treated fairly. Not only were they freaks who looked different, but there were laws passed which restricted them from leading a normal life and participating in society in the same way regular homo sapiens could. This group of misfits and outcasts were united by a physiological status that they had no control over, a mutated X gene, which affected different people in different ways. Some were horribly deformed, while others gained incredible powers. But much like African Americans in the real world, they were treated differently from others in the Marvel Universe, merely based on their appearance rather than the content of their character. As a long-time X-Men uh, writer Chris Claremont said in the early 90s, 
The X-Men are hated, feared, and despised collectively by humanity for no other reason than that they are mutants. So what we have here, intended or not, is a book that's directly about racism, bigotry, and prejudice. As they grow and the book gains some momentum, Mark begins to imitate life and the parallels between the mutants' plight and civil rights movement become very much noticeable. There are hate groups formed uh, around them called the Friends of Humanity that was not very loosely based on the Ku Klux Klan. And there was actually police, a police state set up with these giant robots called Sentinels that were set to round up and control the mutants. In a 1965 uh, interview, Stan Lee had a quote that was actually very similar to a, a famous Martin Luther King quote. And he said, he said uh, I believe bigotry and racism are among the deadliest social ills plaguing the world today which I thought that was very interesting. Um, and I think you can see, obviously, where his, where his feelings lie on the civil rights movement. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about the leaders of the, the mutant groups and how they split and how Malcolm X and Martin Luther King have um, allegories in Professor X and Magneto. Um, just as mutants are designed to represent oppressed groups, so are mutant leaders. More specifically, it's accepted that the X, by most X-Men fans that Charles Xavier and Eric Glenhausen, Magneto, represent the philosophies, at least loosely, of Dr. King and Malcolm X. The argument posits that, like King, Charles Xavier works for better relations with humans and mutants, dreaming of peace and acceptance, integration, while in contrast, Magneto is a militant reverse racist who having lost faith in this unfulfilled dream, fights for the liberation of his people by any means necessary. Um, it's interesting that even in the books, it's kind of heavy handed where right in the early issues, 1963, they talk about Professor X having a dream of mutants living together and they talk about, they actually use the exact terminology, but Magneto says that he'll take, it, take his rights by any means necessary. So, I mean, they're, they're laying it on heavy at this time. It's a provocative argument, and the use of the phrase leaves little doubt where they're heading with that. Well, Magneto, Magneto was very much originally the villain to Xavier's hero, the strict good and evil dichotomy became increasingly blurred through the years. And the X-Men comics and writers have been constantly revisiting this question. Like I said, how Malcolm X's views changed, they actually change Magneto's views as well. The, que the question at hand is, how does an oppressed minority best respond to the oppressive majority? Radical peace or radical empowerment? There are some, also some parallels that's much less cited uh, for real-world counterparts of Xavier and Magneto, and they would be Booker T. Washington and W.B. Du Bois. Like Xavier, Washington stressed the need for the oppressed group to work together with the dominant group and saw education as the primary means of, toward gaining acceptance and tolerance. He also supported, uh, Washington that is, supported schools that were their trade schools so African Americans could learn better themselves a part of white society and then integrate, which is similar to where um, uh, Professor X went with that. Now, Du Bois started out as Washington's ally, much like in the comics, but over time they grew increasingly critical of each other and 
his unwillingness to aggressively confront whites about black civil rights. Du Bois often called Washington the great accommodator. But the two men continued ongoing dialogue about segregation and the black stronghold long after their views began to differ. Of course, the Magneto-Du Bois parallel is not perfect. Unlike uh, Magneto, Du Bois never advocated violence. So one could say that Eric Lenhauser's complex character was a result of amalgamation of Malcolm X and Du Bois. While The Uncanny X-Men would have been a controversial novel or ostracized political view if it had been presented in a less innocuous form, the premiere barely raised an eyebrow from the general public, even as, even as it sold over 700,000 copies. Because this story was presented in a comic book format that was seen as a frivolous or disposable medium, the hate mongers, the media, and even many of those involved in the civil rights movement generally ignored it at first. But none of that mattered for, as Marshall McLuhan says, the medium is the message. Just as trying to be subversed here, Lee and Kirby and those that followed realized that by changing this inconsequential art that the children grew up devouring, they may be able to actually influence the development of how children saw and in turn how they interacted with those who were different from them. <coughs> I had a chance to ask Stan Lee this summer uh, about the background of the creation of the X-Men and if you realize the impact that the book would have on Teens of the Air, and this is what he said roughly. Um, he, said, he said that as a young Jewish American growing, growing up in New York City in the 1930s, he did not feel as though he was given enough information to really understand what was going on in Europe. He remembered feeling like the adults were having a conversation about something that was completely alien to him. And Stan didn't truly understand the gravity of the situation until some of his older friends went off to fight in World War II. And ultimately, he got a first-hand perspective when he served in the U.S. Army himself. Based on that experience, Stan wanted to make sure that the children of the 60s were given at least a cursory understanding of the issues of the day. While the exact details were not important to him, the themes were critical for them to understand the world around them as they grew up. He believes that the knowledge would help them make better decisions when faced with these social issues themselves. Then, this is my favorite part, Stan leaned over and said to me, he said, of course I knew that a book like that would sell very well because kids always want information and I figured if no one else would give it to them, we would. Um, so that goes right with Stan and salesmanship. Um, in essence, Jack and Stan were undertaking this great social experiment with only a slight idea of what they were doing. The genius of the event ended up being in the delivery because the only ones who didn't ignore the Uncanny X-Men were the same people who would eventually decide the future of America. The same ones who would later embrace the vision of Dr. King and put the laws achieved through the struggle of the civil rights movement into practice. These are the ones who would tear down the concepts of racism and even elect African Americans to office. The people I'm talking about are the children of the 1960s. Those children were introduced to a world where people who looked different were not merely the other, but were also shown to have similar hopes, dreams, and fears of those who appeared the same. They saw how all types of people dealt with similar issues, and the X-Men were a catalyst for that. Unlike your average superheroes, in the pages of the book, the X-Men didn't have it easy and dealt with everyday problems, but that realism seemed to speak to the children of the day, especially the teenagers. Stan and Jack had successfully reached a target audience and helped build a generation 
who are willing and able to see the attempted changes that began with the Civil Rights Movement through the first steps of fruition. Now, we could go with, uh, talk about creation of more black heroes or talk more about the subversive children's education movement. <laughs> Choose your own ending button. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Get> excited. <laughs> All right. Quickly, uh, after the X-Men, uh, another hero named the Black Panther appeared in 1963, or 65, excuse me, which was interestingly a couple months before the social activist group came, came around. So uh, this character named T'Challa first appeared in Fantastic Four number 52. He was almost immediately acknowledged <coughs> as the king of an African nation, Wakanda. And it was a technology, a technologically advanced country who outsmarted the British and Dutch in their attempts to colonize them by pitting them against each other. Pretty interesting backstory they came up with. Um, so even so, T'Challa's adventures often involved racial tensions, ecological issues, apartheid, and conflicts between ancient cultures and Western nations. It's important to note that unlike many of the stereotypes literary characters that came before him, he's not defined solely by his skin color or nationality, but he is a product of belief that every person should be judged by his or her own words and actions, not by the color of their skin. Throughout the 1970s, the Black Panther would become would maintain uh, popularity and be a major player in the Marvel Universe, and this opened up the door for him actually getting his own book in 1973, and later characters such as Luke Cage, Black Lightning, um, and most recently, guys like Static, uh, who you probably know from the cartoon, <laughs> and um, having their own comics and proving that they can actually carry a title. Now, what they did in the 60s and 70s, Kirby and Lee, was solidify the, facts, the, the fact that American African-American heroes had a place in a profitable mainstream popular culture uh, with the resolve towards supporting the Black Panther as a character. While the subversive door was propped open by Kirby and Lee creations, a new era in acceptance was formally underway, firmly underway, and being explored by a young visionary puppeteer named Jim Henson, you may have heard of. <laughs> um, in 1967, Henson and his band of Muppets stepped into the living rooms of America with the premiere of Sesame Street on PBS. This multicultural, multi-ethnic educational program reveled the uniqueness of individuality of each person. The ideas of self-worth and self-importance were blatantly <coughs> obvious in the fact that not only was there a lack of homogeneous characters, pretty much every character looked different. This was a huge departure from the entertainment that was common in the 50s and 60s, which was largely whitewashed. Not coincidentally, this new show coincided with the boom of television sets in every home, as well as the focus on women's rights of the era and the era of the working mother. The early onset of children's television programming as a babysitter was here. <laughs> now the younger siblings of these teens who were raised on the X-Men and Marvel Comics will grow up into the first full-fledged generation of acceptance. That is not to say that these children successfully changed the worldview and everything is now perfect because it's clearly not. Rather, the goal, well, sorry. 
rather they were able to open their minds and actually engage in a discourse to see where everything was going in the future. All right. Now, what I hope to do today was to explore the subtext of this children's entertainment in the civil rights era and shine a light on the industry that may have done more to assure the long-term success of the civil rights movement than any of the mainstream events that are commonly at the crux of discussions regarding this controversial decade. With compelling stories and art and an all new caring message and the evangelization of the idea that it's okay to be different, the X-Men were truly groundbreaking. By furthering Dr. King's idea that men should be judged by the content of their character and not the color of their skin, a small group of exceptional men and women ushered in a generation whose minds were open to accepting the challenge of a changing world and the way it operates. The success of any movement like this can only be guaranteed by reaching out to the youth. If you cannot reach the children of the error, your ideas are doomed to fail as soon as the leaders leave. And with that, questions? Discussions? Yes. Um, with the character in X-Men like Emma Frost, who is constantly going from being part of the Brotherhood to part of the X-Men, how would you categorize like her as a significant player in that and if she had any like real world equivalent or impact? So far as real world equivalent, I think that someone like that, like Emma Frost, um, who would go between the, the Brotherhood and the, the X-Men back and forth all the way up till today, um, I think she actually is some more of like a mirror type character um, where a lot of, a lot of people who are fighting the good fight, who are out there, and um, I know there's quotes from the Watts riots in, in Oakland that say, like, listen, Brother Martin, we, I forget exactly how it went, we're all about, we're all about nonviolence, but we're not about to turn the other cheek. So, I mean, this is, that was something that people were struggling with, I believe. And so I think that a lot of people in those situations, people were being oppressed, actually vacillate between being angry and saying, I want to do something about this, to saying, all right, you know what, this is right, we got to be the better people. So, I mean, I think that, I think not having a specific real world uh, analogy, but I think that what they try to do with her is show how it is truly is a gray area of, you know, I mean, maybe not market violence and riots, but there, there's an extremeness of the, the like MLK and Gandhi idea of turning the other cheek. And that's, that's not easy to do. So I think that, that Emma Frost would pretty much show that in, in you know, real, fake, raw. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what do you guys think about the idea that the children were almost more important than, than all the big things that are going on outside? Does anybody have any uh, feeling about it? I think um, as, a, as a teacher, I've been teaching for about 25 years, that you're absolutely right, that the children are the way to change things. You know, I mean, what, how children are raised and the ideas that they're exposed to form their development as people. And these are the people that are going to lead our country eventually. So I think you're absolutely right with this. And comic books were a good medium to get these points across because it's, as you said, it's a medium that's largely overlooked by 
adults and politicians, particularly at that time, and yet readily available to, to children. I remember I grew up in the 60s, and um, it was always a big deal. I mean, when we had 12 cents, we would go and get a comic book. You know, so you were either buying comic books or baseball cards. So we learned to read stats real well, and we learned about what uh, <laughs> Stanley had to had to say, and 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 about about life in general. I mean, I think you're I think you're on point with this, and I like the way that you carried it through to uh, current you know age with Jim Henson and the Muppets, and then still today, they continue to make the make these valid points for for youth. Cool. Who would you say is now coming out with presenting to the children besides the Muppets and that uh, <clears throat> new things that are right now coming out to present? I think that's I think that it's a little more difficult today to reach um, to reach that audience because comics have been co-opted so much into into movies and they're so valuable in the mainstream. Um, but there's still there's still a whole host of, of publishers that are directly um, assigned to producing comics for, for children. I think today, um, and whether this is good or bad is a whole another topic, is that Disney has a lot of influence over the perception of, of history and, you know, and, and kids grow up watching those movies over and over again and, you know, how things happen in, in those movies and the Disney books and on Disney Channel. I'm a Disney fan. But they do a really good job of controlling the the message, um, and it's it goes all the way up corporately, and they have a, a big idea of how they want to present things and um, and how they want to keep their copyrights acting. And um, so, yeah, I think I think that Disney is probably a major player right now on that, and that um, also there's, I mean, you could look into some of the more, uh, say, for instance like Phineas and Ferb or, or cartoons like that that are, you know, maybe a little more witty and, and go a little farther and they get into, lightly get into issues about, um, you know, different cultures and things like that in a much lighter fare. So that's, I mean, there'd be some of the major players today on that, in that market that I would see. Um, I think that overall though, in general, I think people are, are kind of embracing and realizing how important it is to reach the, the you know, children of the day. I think that nowadays, hopefully, um, the people growing up are a lot more involved in these conversations than they were in the 50s and 60s and in the 30s. I think that you'd be, I mean, I guess you wouldn't be surprised, but kids are so much more informed um, than even when I was growing up and way more informed than they were um, in errors past just because of you know you have the internet you have the news in your face you have everything like that and you know I think that they kind of have a good idea of what's going on so I think that you still need to kind of guide them in the, in the right direction but I think that the that and that's kind of why I said that this it was a, a turning point I think that after the great success of the X-Men and the Marvel comics and you know and like I said they sold the first one of things sold 700 thousand copies and they were selling a million copies of uh, a month um, that's a lot of money so publishers see that they figure out what where are they doing and how are we going to get to that so yes. how would you uh, kind of characterize uh, an X-Men like Wolverine who's uh, really violent but yet not as pure as Dr. Evil uh, not Dr. Evil <laughs> <laughs> Cold member, uh, 
<laughs> he's not as pure as uh, Professor X, but not like uh, Magneto as mm -hmm. well. Um, Wolverine's another interesting character, kind of like Emma Frost. He has <laughs> very complex, um, you know, era. And I think that one thing that was touched on early with with Wolverine and he's he's the kind of character who's really popular. So different writers have different takes on him, and they either make him soft and cuddly or like this extreme killing machine. So it's really all over the place. But if you look at like Len Wein and the guys that first wrote him, I think that. Part of it when he was introduced to the X Men as part of the X Men in um, in X Men ninety four, that he was put in as he was an <coughs> experimental super soldier from from Canada. So I think that they were speaking to a little bit of some of the people who were coming back from Vietnam um, and how Wolverine never talked about like his past and he couldn't like, access his memories and he would like you know have have these. These things you really didn't know about him, you kind of had to figure out through the reading. I think that that almost was a way um, to talk to the soldiers who were coming back and who had these backstories, who had been through horrific things, and now we're trying to be back into you know normal everyday society, and it, it's a hard change. Um, so I think once again, you know, Marvel shows another aspect that you could understand. Say, okay, you know, this guy on, on the, my street just came back, and he's not really talking to anybody. You know, maybe I could help him out a little bit. You're reading Wolverine, you can say, all right, well, Wolverine was in all these wars and had all this traumatic stuff happen to him, and he comes back and he doesn't tell anybody about his backstory. So, I mean, there, like I said, there, there are so many analogies, so many ways that the, these guys, that um, Stanley and Jack Kirby, really touch on issues of the day, um, <coughs> and just what's what's underlying a little bit um, of of culture and society. So, so I think that's how you would. Talk about a guy like that, and of course, it, it's comic books and it's violence and blowing up things and cutting people in half and things like that are a little bit out of the, the social commentary context of it. But I mean, that's that's more of guess the uh, the popcorn fun part of it or so. Um, but the, the thematic stuff behind a character like Wolverine is is also important. Um, another thing that that leads to is. Um, Really interesting that right at that same time when Wolverine comes to the X-Men, they had uh, a whole new group that they introduced, which instead of just looking different, they had their backgrounds were different. So they had um, Storm, who's a character from, from Africa. They had uh, Cyclops, or Colossus, who was from Russia. Um, and then they, they had Kitty Pride, who was a Jewish character. And... And even and so, at that time, they, they really are really expanding. And instead of just subtly talking about it, so getting mutants or different people, it's like, no, now here's really people who are different, you know, who are to deal with these social ills and, you know, how are we dealing with them? And it starts a whole new era of a new, new popularity of the X Men. Because that was, I guess, about 1974 um, when that came about. And, uh, and they really got into some really specific social ideals. And uh, even up through the 80s when they went, they talked about this island called Genosha, um, and it was all about apartheid uh, in, in South Africa. I mean, the whole thing was that they had, you know, classes and it was legislated government that the mutants worked for the, 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 the white man. And it was like, it was so, I mean, they, they don't go away from this, even though it's an early thing. The X-Men are constantly talking about those who are different. Um, and even now they have 
North Star and one other character who are um, gay, lesbian characters. So, I mean, they talk, touch on all different types of people and all different types of acceptance. They have a Muslim character now called Dust who's in the Extreme X-Men, I guess. Um, I'm not very familiar with that, but I mean, there really are, you know, what you see outside your window is what they're trying to put in their books, at least thematically. Can I kind of dovetail on that? The idea of what it, whether this is propaganda. And by propaganda, I mean propaganda uses imagery for a very distinct purpose to get one point across and very, and so you, you, you leverage the media to get a point across. Yes. Or whether this is descriptive, whether this is just mining the society they find themselves in to just display things. And without the sort of the, the moral, like, this is the way it should be, uh, is there a utopian vision that ever comes out? Is this trying to tell us how to act, or is this just describing the society that, that, these, that these comic book writers find? And that's the difference between being de descriptive and proscriptive. Yes. It's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> and I have a question that kind of goes along with that, so maybe you could answer both. Um, I think like back in the 60s or you know what you were saying, like it, it was a very moralistic kind of message. Today it seems sort of like um, like generic, like now the X-Men are in the Disney store. and So I mean, I guess what my thoughts are, where is this kind of medium going? Because it seems, you know, you spoke a lot about the history of it, the moral message, the groundbreaking, you know, thoughts and this and that. But then like, you think of it today and it's like, the movies are the next big thing, they want to capture your attention, they're blowing stuff up, they're this, they're that. So like, aren't they losing a little bit of that like where is this? Where is this going? Is this going to be around in ten years? I mean, have they lost something? I, I personally think they have, absolutely. Okay, but your her, your question assumes that it's changed. Yeah. yeah. Over time, yeah. my question assumes that it's not changed. That oh, it's okay. always been descriptive, okay. not a kind of yeah. a moral. That the morality we see in retrospect, we look back mm -hmm. through the lens of time and okay. say, oh my God, that was so forward thinking. That was right. that was foreshadowing. Like these are the issues. But in the day, all they're doing is looking around and just right. displaying what they exactly. see in front of them. So that and I think, yeah, so to address uh, Dr. Warner, I think that at the time, I mean, from talking to Stan, I think that they did have an idea of what they wanted to show. That being said, it probably wouldn't fall under the propaganda type machine. I think it was more... Um, them, since, like, like I, as I mentioned, a lot of them had that Jewish-American background, I think they were more writing from their own experience and saying, you know, hey, this is similar to what we went through, you know, I, and so, I mean, it's, it's, it is descriptive in a way, but where it could fall into the propaganda, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say propaganda, but mere education, is that I think that how they, what they felt is that the, these kids reading that didn't have access to their, their experiences and they really, even though this, this was the world outside being descriptive, that there was that bubble that the children didn't really experience that world outside. So they couldn't understand what was going on in, in Selma. They didn't understand why it was important that Rosa Parks went to the front of the bus. So I think that where it might be a slight tinge on propaganda is they were definitely putting pointing in the direction of, you know, you should treat people better, you know, and, and that was their, their basis of it. Um, but I think that it was descriptive, and that was 
I think there was a script of, but that was really important for the time and even today because you, you need to open that discourse and have the kids exposed to, you know, what happens and, and you know, and then take it out to extreme levels of, you know, okay, now you have the bad guy with laser being blown up things, but dial that back and you have, you know, no one paying attention as the Nazis march into Poland and take over, you know? So, I mean, I think that, I think that the descriptive part of it is, is also very important, but I do, I, I do agree that it might not fall into the propaganda aspect as much as we see it today. You know, looking back in retrospect, you can look at something like that and say, wow, this is fantastic, where, you know, while, uh, as I said, Stan and Jack kind of had an idea of what they wanted to present, they may not have realized the, the cultural impact that they would have on, on everything. So I think with that. But, but I'm sympathetic with your, that the, it's been commercialized, the comics, Marvel. Yeah. Marvel has become a, a huge, yeah. they, huge commercial machine. I would so never use it to teach children right from wrong at this point. Like, I, I well, don't but know. you could, but here's where you it's could go too, back and. It's too granola. It's too, yeah. like, general, like. I think that you could go think back, the back and. Novels probably were. Use yeah. the old stuff, yeah. the graphic yeah. novels and everything. Yeah. I mean, think that, and, and, you know, as an educator, you can mine out the things that were. You know, there are important and there are value in a lot of things. And then there's a lot of stuff that's there to sell. And they kind of almost diverge now. Um, but even in the big movies, you look at the the, the newest one, the uh, first class, there are a lot of social undertones in that. And, you know, you know, directly tied. I mean, they said it in 1962, like it was the whole aspect of the Cuban Missile Crisis and things like that were, were really a callback to the times of when the X-Men started. Um, so that takes away from the, I guess, the big commercialization and, and how they're changing things. So. Um, maybe, I just have something maybe to add in since I kind of grew up in that culture of being sure. commercialized. <laughs> <laughs> um, with like the movies coming out and you see people walking around in Captain America t-shirts or like different comic book t-shirts, it kind of helps bring you into that. Mm -hmm. um, I know like that's how I kind of got into comic books was like, you know, my older brother started wearing their t-shirts around of like different comic books. <laughs> I started seeing it in the stores and stuff like that. That got me interested in the movies, which got me interested in the comics. Mm -hmm. So I think it helps bring it into, like the commercialization doesn't mm -hmm. hurt it. It helps people find it. It brings in a new audience. I agree. I'm just wondering, um, do you think, like, I understand how we're saying about, like, portraying people who are different, like, a positive light, how it's a good thing, but, like, you mentioned, like, characters called, like, the Black Panther, like, the Black Lightning. Could that be portrayed, like, a mind of a child, like, okay, so much emphasis on the race part that, okay, these people of a different race are different, and, and therefore should be separate. Think in a mind of a child, and you also talk about mutants. So think in a mind of a child, that could get confused. Right. I can see that, and that's, that's actually a, a huge comic, I don't say comic geek, but a comic geek debate of, you know, why, why the characters, why so many characters of ethnic, you know, backgrounds are called like, okay, the Black Panther, Black Goliath, but I mean, you, you don't need that. And they're trying to kind of go away from that a little bit. Um, it's, uh, I do, th I do think that there, there is a danger zone there, especially when you say, when you put it out like that. Um, which is why even like that second run of, of you know, of mutants and the X-Men are, they, they didn't go with all that. I mean, the Black Panther was the first one they put out. 
um, the first African American character that was the headline. So I mean, I guess that was the the best way they could do it. He has a Panther suit on, looks cool, you know. Um, but then they have like the, the, the newer characters are called. You know, you have like Storm. Um, you have uh, one of the Green Lanterns. Um, so you have you have characters now assuming roles and titles. Um, and there's actually a great book by Kyle Baker uh, called Truth, and it talks about the uh, about Captain America and the beginnings of that. And uh, the guy, the the first Captain America, who was Isaiah Bradley, <clears throat> who was the guy from like basically the Tuskegee experiment, and uh, you know, and his grandson is now a, a superhero. Um, so I mean. They do address that, and I see how that's a problem, but I think that even, especially even at that time, it was still, even with the names, it was still kind of groundbreaking for that, but I could see, I definitely see the dangers in that, and I, I think that people who are writing these books do see that, and they're trying to go away from it. But could, yes. could it, oh, I'm sorry, I was going to say, could it also maybe bring in that Maybe a, a different, together. different races will say, oh, wait, they got black superheroes. Let me start reading into it and then go into it more. You know, like brings, them, brings them together. The different ones in. Yeah, I mean, I think that's another valid uh, way to do it. I was going to say that it depends on what age children are, too, because if you're, obviously, if you're a teenager, you know that there's already you're already been socialized to believe that, but if you're like relatively young, you still have a relatively open mind about those things and they haven't been formed yet, so you're just reading it as an open book. Yeah, yeah, so you don't you don't understand even the context or concept of, you know, like, which is a good point where Black Panther means just as much to as Green Lantern, you know, because <coughs> he has a green suit, Black Panther has a black suit on, um, and, with the children, even there's this the new cartoon of uh, Marvel Action Squad or Hero Squad, and they changed a couple of the characters. One, one being a guy who used to be called Black Goliath is now just Goliath. So I mean, they're they're taking it out, but I, that that's actually a good point where young young kids that young may not even really have that socialized concept of you know the differences there. But um, I think that I think that the the benefits of knowing that they're different with say the mutants and um you know and and how you treat people i think that it, it needs to be that obvious so they can see like where the, the context is the subtext behind it um i mean i'm not too much into the comics but from the movies uh at least in first class uh i remember beast and mystique were like they, they were the ones most affected by their appearance because they were the ones that stood out yeah um what like do you have like a certain opinion on why those two characters specifically were were different in appearance to the rest of them? And like everyone else just had a normal human appearance while those two like were blue. They they just it was just very clear to the to the eye that, that they were different. They're different, yeah. Uh do you think that, that was like on purpose that just those two characters were supposed to look different, at least out of the the original group? Out of out of them? I think, yeah, I think that the part of the idea was even in the internal group dynamics, um, because they would obviously and uh, have a different idea of what it meant to be a mutant or meant to be different because, you know, and, and that's even touched on in some of the, uh, some of the earlier movies where um, the beast is saying like, hey, listen, I think I have a cure for this, you know, for, for being mutant, where then you have people who, um, some of the mutants who could obviously, you know, interact on a day-to-day -day basis, we're saying, hey, well, you know, you don't need to be cured. 
But yeah, internally you have a different feeling if you externally look different. So I think that is really important um, to have those characters who physically look different. Um, and another an, an interesting side subplot of uh, Beast in, in the actual comic books was he actually was originally not blue, but he was just really hairy and kind of like, and, uh, and, and his trying to discover and find a cure for his mutation, he actually turned himself blue. So that is, is another like kind of cultural uh, subtext to say, you know, in, be happy with, with who you are, you know, and I mean, you're not gonna turn yourself blue, but you should, <laughs> you should look to find acceptance and, and things like that. So yeah, I think that was definitely um, done on purpose. And really what that can do is, is let you see in a, in a group of peers, how people who are obviously different will interact with each other. So yes, I think it's really important. Um, the X-Men weren't the first superhero group, but I would argue that they had the most impact, and that's kind of what this whole talk is about. Yeah. Where do you think groups like the Avengers, the Justice League, or even the Fantastic Four, where they kind of missed the mark mm -hmm. of being the supergroup that the X-Men are? I think that at the time, um, you had the Fantastic Four pretty much started the whole new Marvel, Marvel Age of comics, um, and and as a quick aside, I'm uh, talking mostly about Marvel because they were decades ahead of where DC was at this time um, with how they portrayed minorities and, and how they even talked about real world issues. Um, DC just didn't get to that until later because they were selling a ton of the comics that they had. Marvel was new and wanted a different angle, and they actually were trying to get the teens in. Um, I think that Fantastic Four were, were needed at that time to, to establish it, and you needed a group that would fit in with what they were expected. Um, and they, they had to deal with some things of being different, especially they, later on, they talked a lot about um, Ben Grimm, the thing, and his mutation and how he was different, and it caused animosity within the group um, because he looked different physically. And he's, there's always a thing where he wants to look normal again. Um, so they did get to that, um, but that was after the X-Men. Um, whereas the Avengers were kind of this group of characters who were a little bit different. They had uh, you know, Captain America, who was a guy, man out of time. They had uh, scientists. They had uh, Norse God and Thor. So they started to get there, but they really weren't different. They really were still these like great superheroes. You know, they were, you know, they were they were larger than life. Um, I think where it started and where they really had the right idea and, and what directly led to the X Men was Spider Man, um, who Peter Parker is a normal high school kid, kind of nerdy, and you know become and and if you read especially the early issues, you know. He's worried about who he's going to ask to the dance, and then oh my goodness, I got to go step store from where I'm now. I'm late for class. Like these are stuff. These are things that never came up in in you know comic books before any kind of superhero comic books. So I think that showed them that the the kids, the the audience was interested in people who, who maybe did have some issues, who weren't perfect heroes, um, and that led directly into. Fantastic Four, uh, I mean, into the X-Men and, and how they really show people who are different and dealing with this, like, you know, bigotry and, and racism. Um, so I think it was a gradual 
ramp up. I don't think the Fantastic Four missed the mark. I think the Avengers maybe, you know, initially, that's why they juggled the, the lineup so much. I think initially they didn't get to where they wanted to be. It was more of a good seller than, than really making any kind of statement. Um, but then as uh, Spider-Man really grew and became a more fleshed out character, they, I think they knew that they could they could sell this and that it was an important place. So I mean, I think that he went right in with the X Men and uh, and I also think that they did a, a big thing because they were they were losing some sales in the late '60s where people were buying the more um, they they were buying the uh, Nick Fury stuff and the space adventures, which are very like psychedelic and looking like that. Um, is when they revamped the team and said, okay, we need to do this again. And what we're going to do is introduce this team that it's not only kind of touches on the themes, but like I, I said before, now we're going to introduce all kinds of characters from different backgrounds. So, yeah, so I think that's where where, where X-Men really gets it right. And I think they stay true to that, too. And I think that a lot of times in comics and in, in any kind of popular culture, stuff kind of gets taken into the, the mainstream more. And I think that the X-Men always have that little background. While they may have the big movies and the mainstream cartoons, if you look into it, they always have at least one book that's really talking about serious social issues. And I think that's, that's kind of their, their trademark and it's really important. And you know, like you said, they, they hit it right on the mark. They did it right, that's why they're still around. Yes. All right, um, you said that Professor X reflected Martin Luther King. And, yes. Uh, I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit more on like, I am so concerned about children and violence everywhere. Like, violence in movies, violence in comic books. But is there anywhere there that, that it would teach a different way? Oh. Or, or maybe not? I don't know. Yeah, there, there is. There's a, too much. In, uh, there's a... <laughs> and, that, and that's a problem that, that people do bring up with Professor Eric. like, all right, well, and then he's training these guys to go fight. Even though they're fighting against bad guys, is that, how's that reflecting on violent? Um, it's interesting in that where that where they draw that line is that the X Men usually when they're when they have like um, humans who are coming out against them and having rallies and you know trying to cure or murder them like that's where they use they, they go with the nonviolent aspect and where you know he always says like listen we're we're here to protect them and things like that um, but when the the brotherhood and the, the evil mutants come that's when they get into the big fight. So there's that message is there underlying, even though it's not quite as obvious. Um, I think actually it ties into more of a, a, a later uh, later day, like uh, Martin Luther King was near close to the end of his life when he was really start talking more about the, the anti-war and against poverty and things like that and being a little bit more, um, I don't wanna say aggressive, but you know, more, more uh, forthright, yeah being out there more and saying like, you know, instead of just taking a purely nonviolent stand, now we're gonna be out in front and saying like, we're not violent, but we're here, you know? So I think that that's, that's where, you know, that ties in too, so. And you can even see that in the, in the latest movie, the first class movie at the very end, when, um, you know, Professor X kind of gets more of an idea that the people still chase, even if they save the day, the people still come and try to chase them off at the end. So, you know, I think that there's, I think that's an interesting, you know, Thing with that but it's not a perfect analogy it's just a, a general thematic analogy so yeah but there is definitely violence in the in the comics yeah. yes do you, do you think in the comic world there's a there's a a greater uh 
fear about going into the um, of homosexuality. I know that Green Lantern last year was relaunched as a gay character, a gay superhero. But but if we talk if we're talking about like the civil rights of the day and how yeah. comics deal with the mm -hmm. thing, if you're talking about people that are hidden, but not you know like man, this would seem to be a slam dunk. Absolutely, and they and they don't. What's is that? there a but though? I mean, but there is there a hesitancy for for comics to go into this because of there's sure. this kind of its target audience and the ambivalence yes. is still yeah. deep there's within a, our culture about. Here's, yeah. here's a big problem, and this was a problem also early on when you're talking about um, introducing like we talked about the introducing black characters. Um, some the writers usually you know you're trying to write from a point of experience. So if you're not a gay writer. Mm -hmm. And you write the character, it ends up almost making it a caricature, even though you're trying to do, you know, what's what's best. Um, but they do, they do definitely come up with that. And I mean, as early as the '80s, they they talked to uh, their character Northstar, who was who was openly homosexual, you know, in in like '84 by John Byrne. Um, another thing they did that was really interesting, and this would go along with the the subplots. Um, they had this rampant legacy virus they called it in the in the um, <coughs> community and it would you know no matter what your powers were it would sap your power and you eventually would die from it it was it was devastating i mean that's an analogy for aids um as, as i see it and is you know and it, and it was interesting how they broached it too because first it was like only mutants could get this virus so they started saying okay well you have to stay separate and then it rolls over and said oh well now humans get the virus too so I mean I think oh, that right, there sure. are yeah. I mean I think that there is like under underlying like putting in the themes again to talk about um, and I think part of it part of the thing that they need to do um, and even while talking about the gay and lesbian rights is is maybe do take a tip from Charles Schultz when he introduced Franklin be like okay there's a black character there we're not gonna acknowledge. I mean, he's there, he's one of us. And I think that that's an important aspect to point out too. That not only all the issues, but also the acceptance too. So some of the characters, like Forge has been a gay character um, in, in X-Men and there's almost nothing ever said about it. Then once in a while it comes up and he shows up with his boyfriend and it's just like accepted. So I mean, they use them different characters in different ways too, which is really interesting. But they do get into the subjects. And I think okay. exactly the, the legacy virus is a big one where they kind of had that down, even though it wasn't specifically spoken about how they wrote about it, yeah. really reflected. Well, you'd think this would be a great opportunity because it's mostly young men that are reading this. I'm sorry, I'm trampling that's okay. that. But I mean, that's the, the, the people who are really defining their sexuality yes. at that age group, that is the demographic. Yeah. Know? So I mean, yeah. they could do something. I, I mean, that's so good to hear that there positive. is something going on. Yeah, yeah. Right. Quite actually, I would like to touch on that is um, the, like, with the Young Avengers now, mm -hmm. they have a gay couple in the group, like in part of the event, oh, right. and it's, you know, they're together, they're a part of the group, so it's always going to be a big thing for them during the comics, they'll always be together, and they'll be shown, like, through the struggles and through their happiness together, and so oh, right. that's another part, and if they also touch on a good thing where, um, like, Captain America is now a girl, and she's Latin American, her name is America Chavez, I believe her last name was, so, like, <laughs> I'm not really sure, my boyfriend tells me, but, um, She's like, so that's like not only touching on race, that's touching on gender, and she's the leader of them, so that's even like another big thing coming up with um, like women's rights and mm -hmm. having a gay couple. So I think that comic is like definitely starting to touch on all these ideas. 
What's the name of that one? Young Avengers. Young Avengers. Young Avengers? But they'll never they just be sold at Disney. Well, no, they were all. I don't know. That was a really big yeah. mistake to acquire Marvel. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly. It's like watered down and loses something. Well, I think it's just the movies. It's like yeah. the movie, like mm -hmm. the movie verse and the like comic universe are just very different. Yes. Yes. Right. yes. So yes. it's just the kids. Sadly, today they look mostly at the movies, and that's right. why they're getting everything. Right. Well, that's, they looked that's at the, the comics, shame of it. Right. If they looked at the comics, there's so much more depth. Yeah. yeah there's more depth in your your reading and yeah. you know, that's and you, your imagination. Reading is always good. Helps with SATs. Helps with SATs. Do you think Disney would ever start branching out to that for younger generations movies? Um, yes, absolutely. They're, they're, I mean, they have the, the cartoons already, and, and they sell the direct-to-DVD, um, you know, it's, it's a superhero squad. and So, yeah, they're, they're going into it, but what they're doing now is Disney and Marvel are kind of run separately, almost, almost like Pixar, like, it's underneath the Disney umbrella, but they have their own people running it, so it's, it's pretty similar to what it was before the acquisition. Um, they do have the big money behind it, and I think that for live action children's movies, right now, all the movies are kind of aimed to cross over to kids a little bit, but they're definitely for adults and teens and stuff like that. So I think that they may get into that, but right now they're making so much money off of the movies how they're doing it, and the cartoons as they're doing it, I think that it's a little ways off, you know, um, what they're going to do. The, one of the new movies coming out is called Guardians of the Galaxy, and that was kind of a interesting book where it's kind of fun and space opera type of stuff. So that might be end up being one of the movies that they put into with more of a kid's idea. Personally, there's this there's this thing called the Pet Avengers, which is fantastic <laughs> and I think they, I think they could make that into a really cool like CGI movie for kids and uh, and they would really enjoy it um, because basically like throughout the history of the Avengers and X-Men comic books a lot of the superheroes have sidekick animals so basically everybody gets kidnapped and the animals have to go save the day and it's, it's really it's really a fun book it's written by a couple of guys that do a lot of kids books and you know, he was playing in the Marvel sandbox, so uh, I think that would be, personally, that's that's the way I would go with putting a movie out that would be awesome because the older people would appreciate it, but kids would probably love it, you know, so. Great. All right, I think we're uh, just about out of time. Any, anything else, anybody? No? You got to pass those papers out? Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming. I really appreciate it.